Section 4 of Rameau's Nephew. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Rameau's Nephew by Denis Diderot. Translated by Ian C. Johnston. Section 4. Him. You people are so very odd. Me. And you are creatures who well deserve to be pitied. If you can't see how we've raised ourselves above our fate, and that it's impossible to be unhappy under the shelter of two fine actions like the one I've just mentioned. Him. Well, that's a type of happiness which I'll find it difficult to get familiar with, because we meet it rarely. But, according to you, should we then be decent people? Me. To be happy? Yes, certainly. Him. But I see countless decent people who are not happy, and countless people who are happy without being decent. Me. So it seems to you. Him. But isn't it because I had some common sense and candor for a moment that I have no idea where to get a meal this evening? Me. Not at all. The reason is you've not had those qualities all along. It's because you didn't realize early on that it's first necessary to create options for yourself, which will make you independent, free from serving others. Him. Independent or not, what I've made for myself is at least the most comfortable. Me. And the least secure and the least honest. Him. But it's the one best suited to my character as a lazy man, fool, and scoundrel. Me. I agree with that. Him. And since I can find happiness through vice as natural to me, which I've acquired without working, which I maintain without effort, which are compatible with the customs of my country, which suit the tastes of those who protect me and are closer to their small particular needs than virtues which would embarrass them, by criticizing them morning and night, it would be really odd if I were to go on tormenting myself like some soul in hell in order to cut myself up and make myself something other than I am, to give myself a character foreign to my own very worthy qualities. I'll concede that, to avoid an argument, but which would cost me a great deal to acquire and to practice, and which would lead to nothing, perhaps worse than nothing, because all the time I'd have to satirize the rich people among whom beggars like me have to find a living. People praise virtue, but they hate it. They run away from it, because it makes them freezing cold, and in this world one has to have warm feet. Besides, it would inevitably make me moody. Why else do we so often see devout people so hard, so angry, so unsociable? It's because they've imposed on themselves a task which isn't natural to them. They suffer, and when one suffers, one makes others suffer. That's not what I want, nor my patrons. I have to be happy, flexible, pleasant, funny, amusing. Virtue makes itself respected, and respect is uncomfortable. Virtue makes itself admired, and admiration is not amusing. My business is with people who are bored, and I have to make them laugh. So I have to be ridiculous and funny. And if nature had not made me that way, the simplest thing would be to appear like that. Fortunately, I don't need to be a hypocrite. There are already so many of them of every stripe, without counting those who are hypocritical even with themselves. Take that Chevalier de la Morière, who turns up his hat above his ears, who holds his head in the air, 
who looks at you over his shoulder as you go by, who has a long sword banging against his thigh, who has an insult ready for anyone who doesn't carry one, and who seems to be issuing a challenge to everyone coming along. What's he doing? Everything he can to persuade himself that he's a stout-hearted man. But he's a coward. Just tweak the end of his nose, he'll take it quietly. If you want to make him lower his voice, raise your own. Show him your cane, or give him a kick in the ass. He'll be astonished to find out he's a coward, and will ask you how you found out. Who told you? The moment before he was ignorant of the fact, for his long and habitual aping of bravery had impressed on him that he was. He'd gone through the pretense so many times he believed that's what he was. And that woman who mortifies herself, who visits prisons, who helps at all the charitable meetings, who walks along with her eyes lowered, who would never dare to look a man in the face, always on guard against being seduced by her senses, does all that keeps her heart from burning, sighs escaping from her, her temperament catching fire, her desires obsessing her, and her imagination going over and over night and day scenes from the Portier de Chartreux or the Posture de l'Arrêté. So then what happens to her? What does her maid think of her when she gets up in her nightdress and rushes to help her mistress as she's dying? Justine, go back to bed. It's not you your mistress is calling for in her delirium. And what about friend Rameau? What if one day he began to show signs of contempt for wealth, women, good food, and laziness, and started to act like Cato? What would he be? A hypocrite. Rameau has to be what he is. A happy thief among wealthy thieves. And not a virtuous swaggerer, or even a virtuous man, gnawing his crust of bread by himself or among beggars. To sum up, I won't put up with your idea of happiness or the well-being of a few visionaries like you. Me. I see, my dear fellow, that you have no idea what that is, and that you're not even capable of learning what it is. Him. So much the better, by God, so much the better. It would probably make me die of hunger, boredom, and remorse. Me. Given that, the only advice I have for you is to go back quickly to the house where you so imprudently got yourself thrown out. Him. And do what you don't object to literally, but find offensive metaphorically? Me. That's my advice. Him. Regardless of that metaphor which I object to for the moment, but which won't bother me at some other time. Me. How odd you are. Him. There's nothing odd about it. Well, I'm happy enough to be abject, but I want that to happen without any compulsion. It's all right with me to abandon my dignity. What's so funny? Me. Your dignity makes me laugh. Him. Everyone has his own. I'm happy to forget mine, but at my own discretion, and not on someone else's orders. Does it have to be the case that when someone can say to me, Crawl, I have to crawl? That's how a worm operates. And it's my way, too. We both follow it when people leave us alone. But we raise ourselves up when someone steps on our tails. People have stepped on my tail, and I straightened up. But then you have no idea of the madhouse we're talking about. Imagine a melancholy and sullen personality, consumed with vapors, wrapped up in two or three layers of dressing gown, who loves himself, but who's unhappy about everything, a person from whom it's difficult to get a smile, even if you distort your body and mind in a hundred different ways. 
she examines coldly the pleasant grimaces of my face and of my judgment, which are even more pleasant, for, between us, that Father Christmas, that nasty Benedictine so famous for his grimaces, for all his success at court, is nothing but a wooden punch in comparison to me. And I say that without praising myself or him. I went to great lengths tormenting myself to reach the highest arts of the idiot house. But it's no use. Will he laugh? Who won't he? That's what I'm forced to say to myself in the middle of my contortions, and you can judge how much this uncertainty damages one's talent. My hypochondriac, with a nightcap pulled down over his head covering his eyes, has the expression of an immobile idol with a string attached around his chin, which goes from there right down under his armchair. One waits for the string to be pulled, but it's not pulled. If it so happens that the jaw opens, it's to utter a distressing word, a word which informs you that you've not even been noticed and that all your monkey tricks have been wasted. This word is a response to a question you asked him four days ago. Once the word has been uttered, the mastoid spring is released and the jaws snap shut. Then he began to imitate the man he was talking about. He was seated in a chair with his head fixed, his cap right down to his eyelids, his eyes half shut, his arms hanging down, moving his jaws like a robot. He said, Yes, you are right, mademoiselle. One has to be perceptive in these matters. That's the person who decides, who always decides, and there's no appeal. In the evening, in the morning, at his morning toilet, at dinner, in the cafe, at the gaming table, in the theater, at supper, in bed, and, God forgive me, in the arms of his mistress too, I think. I'm not in a position to hear these last decisions, but I'm damn weary of the others. Sad, obscure, cut and dried, like fate. That's the kind of patron we have. Right across from him there's a prudish woman who's pretending to be important. One could persuade oneself that she's attractive, because she still is, although her face has some scabs here and there, and she's getting as large as Madame Bouvillon. I do like flesh when it's beautiful, but for all that, too much is too much. Movement is so essential to matter. Item. She is more malicious, more proud, more stupid than a goose. Item. She'd like to have wit. Item. One has to persuade her that people think she's more witty than anyone else. Item. She knows nothing, but she makes decisions too. Item. One has to applaud these decisions with one's feet and hands, to jump for joy, to become paralyzed with admiration. Your decision is so beautiful, delicate, well said, perceptive, uniquely felt. Where do you women get all this? Without any studying, purely by the power of instinct, by your own natural light. It's miraculous. And then people come to tell us that experience, study, reflection, and education all play a part in it. All sorts of other similar stupidities, with tears of joy, to bow down ten times a day, with one knee bent in front and the other leg stuck out behind, one's arms stretched toward the goddess, looking for her desires in her eyes, hanging onto her lip, waiting for her order, and dashing off like a bolt of lightning. Who could subject himself to such a role? except the poor wretch who, two or three times a week, finds something there to calm the tribulation of his intestines. What is one to think of the others, like Palisson, Frerot, the Poinsonnets, Bacillard, who do have some property, and whose baseness thus cannot be excused by the rumbling of a suffering stomach? Me. I'd never have thought you were so fussy. Him. Who I'm not. 
At first I used to watch the others doing it, and I carried on like them, even a little better, because I'm more candidly impudent, a better actor, and I was hungrier, and equipped with better lungs. Apparently I trace my descent in a direct line from the famous Stentor. And to give me a fair idea of the force of this organ of his, he began to cough violently enough to make the windows in the cafe rattle, and to divert the attention of the chess players from their game. Me. But what good is this talent? Him. You can't guess? Me. No. I'm a bit limited. Him. Supposing a dispute has started and victory is uncertain, I stand up and, displaying my thunder, cry out, It's just as Madam has assured us it is. That's what one calls judgment, a hundred times better than our fine wits. The expression is pure genius. But one mustn't always approve in the same way. That would make one monotonous. You'd look false, and would become insipid. The only way around that is with judgment and creativity. You need to know how to prepare, and when to put in those peremptory major tones, how to seize your chance in the moment. For example, when there is a division of opinion, when the argument has moved up to the final stage of violence, when no one is in agreement anymore, when everyone is speaking at once, then you must take up a position some distance away, in the corner to the apartment furthest removed from the field of battle. You must prepare for the eruption with a long silence, and then blow up suddenly, like an explosion, in the middle of the contenders. No one has my skill in this art. But where I'm really surprising is in the opposite skill. I have some soft notes which I accompany with a smile, an infinite variety of expressions of approval, bringing into play my nose, mouth, forehead, and eyes. I have a supple back, a way of turning my spine, or raising and lowering my shoulders, extending my fingers, inclining my head, closing my eyes, and being amazed, as if I'd heard the voice of a divine angel coming down from heaven. That's what does the flattering. I'm not sure if you really understand the full power of the attitude I've just mentioned. I didn't invent it, but no one has pulled it off better than me. Look, watch this. Me. It's certainly unique. Him. Do you think there's a slightly vain female brain which could hold out against it? Me. No. I have to concede that you have taken the talent for making fools of people, and for demeaning oneself as far as it's possible to go. Him. All those others, however many there are, they'll do well, but they'll never get to that point. The best of them, Palosso, for example, will never be anything but a good pupil. But if this role is amusing at first, and if you enjoy the pleasure of laughing to yourself at the stupidity of those you are intoxicating, in the long run it loses its appeal. Besides, after a certain number of discoveries, you have to repeat yourself. Wit and art have their limits. Only God or a few rare geniuses could make a career out of it which grows as they advance. Bure is such a person, perhaps. That man has certain tricks which impress me, yes, even me, as sublime ideas. The little dog, the book of happiness, the torches on the road to Versailles. Those are things which stagger me and put me to shame. It could be enough to make one unhappy with the profession. Me. What about that little dog? What are you talking about? Him. Where have you come from? What, in all seriousness, 
You don't know how that extraordinary man set about detaching himself from a little dog and attaching it to the keeper of the seals, who'd taken a fancy to it? Me. I confess I have no idea. Him. So much the better. It's one of the most beautiful things one could imagine. All Europe marveled at it, and there isn't a single courtier who wasn't envious of it. You're a man who doesn't lack a certain shrewdness. Let's see what you'd have done in his place. Remember that Bourret was loved by his dog. Remember that the odd costume of the minister used to terrify the little animal. And remember that there were only eight days to overcome the difficulties. One has to understand all the conditions attached to the problem in order to appreciate properly the merit of the solution. Well then? Me. Well, I have to confess to you that, in this sort of thing, the simplest things baffle me. Him. Listen, he says to me, giving me a slight bow on the shoulder. He's very informal. Listen and admire. He has someone make him a mask, which looks like the Keeper of the Seals, and he borrows the latter's voluminous robe from a footman. He covers his face with the mask and puts on the robe. He calls his dog and caresses it. He gives it a biscuit. Then, all of a sudden, with a change of clothes, he is no longer the Keeper of the Seals, but Bourret. He calls his dog and beats it. In less than two or three days of doing this exercise from morning to night, the dog learns to run away from Bourret the Farmer General, and run to Bourret the Keeper of the Seals. But I'm being too kind. You're a layman who doesn't deserve to be instructed in the miracles which go on right beside you. Me. In spite of that, if you don't mind, the book and the torches? Him. No, no. Ask the cobblestones. They'll tell you about those things. You must profit from the circumstances which have brought us together to learn those things which no one knows except me. Me. You're right. Him. To borrow the robe and the wig of the Keeper of the Seals. Why, I'd forgotten about the wig. To make a mask which looks like him. It's the mask above all that turns my head. Also, this man is of the highest respectability, and he owns millions. There are men with the St. Louis cross who don't have any bread. So why run after the cross at the risk of working oneself to death and not turn to an activity with no danger, which never fails to pay? That's what we call acting in the grand manner. Role models like that are disheartening. One pities oneself and loses interest. That mask. The mask. I'd give one of my fingers to have come up with that mask. Me. But with this enthusiasm of yours for fine things, and the creative genius you possess, have you invented anything? Him. Let's see. Well, one example is the attitude of admiration I make with my back, which I spoke to you about. I look upon that as mine, although some envious people could perhaps argue with me about it. I think that people used it before. But who realized just how handy it was for having a secret laugh at the fool one was admiring? I have more than a hundred ways to start the seduction of a young girl right under her mother's nose, without her perceiving a thing, and even making her an accomplice. I'd hardly started on my career when I turned my back on all the common ways to slip someone a love letter. I have ten ways of getting people to snatch it away from me. Among these methods, I dare flatter myself that there are some original ones. Above all, I possess the talent for encouraging a timid young man. 
Why, I've enabled some to succeed who had neither wit nor looks. If that were all written out, I think that people would attribute some genius to me. Me. Would you get remarkable honors? Him. I don't doubt it. Me. If I were you, I'd put those things down on paper. It would be a pity if they were lost. Him. That's true, but you have no idea how unimportant method and precepts are to me. Someone who needs written instructions will never get far. The geniuses read little, act a great deal, and create themselves. Look at Caesar, Turenne, Vauban, the Marquise de Tancy, his brother the Cardinal, and the Cardinal Secretary, Abbe Troublet. And Bourret? Who gave Bourret lessons? No one. It's nature that makes exceptional men like that. Do you think that the story of the dog in the mask is written down somewhere? Me. But in the hours when you have nothing to do, when the agony of your empty stomach or the weariness in your cramped stomach stops you from sleeping. Him. We'll all think about it. It's better to write about great things than to carry out trivial ones. Then the soul is raised, the imagination heats up, catches fire, and grows, instead of shrinking up beside that little hoo-girl. In her amazement at the applause which the idiotic public insists on lavishing on that simpering d'Angville, who acts with so little imagination, who moves through the scene almost double over and affects to stare continuously into the eyes of whoever she is talking to, underplays her role, and who confuses her own grimaces with subtlety, her tiny trotting around with a graceful movement, or on that bombastic Clairol woman who's scrawnier, more affected, more mannered and starchy than anyone could imagine. Those idiots in the pit bring the house down applauding them. They don't see that we are a pack full of charm. It's true that the pack is getting somewhat larger, but so what? We have the most beautiful skin, the finest eyes, the best-looking mouths. Not much heart inside, to be sure. While walk which is not light, but not as awkward as people maintain. As for feelings, on the other hand, there isn't one which we couldn't over-trump. Me. Why are you saying all this? Are you being truthful or ironical? Him. The problem is that this devil of a feeling is all inside and no glimmer of it reaches the outside. But as for me, the one talking to you, I know, and know well, that she has some... Well, if it's not that exactly, it's something like that. You need to see how we treat servants, when we're in the mood, how we slap the chambermaids, how we kick old casual parts booty around if he fails to deliver the respect due us. She's a little devil, I tell you, full of feeling and dignity. Hey, you're not sure what all this is about, are you? Me. I confess I have no idea how to sort out whether you're speaking in good faith or maliciously. I'm a decent man, so be good enough to deal with me directly and put away your art. Him. Well, that's just what we say to the little hoo-girl about Dongville and Clairon, mixing in a few words here and there to rouse your suspicions. I don't mind your taking me for a rascal, but not for an idiot. And only an idiot or a man hopelessly in love could say so many outrageous things seriously. Me. But how does one bring oneself to say such things? Him. That doesn't happen all at once. One gets there gradually. Ingenie largator venter. The belly incites genius. Me. 
You have to be forced into it by a savage hunger. Him. That could do it. However, no matter how extreme these things seem to you, you should know that those to whom they are addressed are much more accustomed to hearing them than we are to trying them out. End of section 4